who are the stakeholders at the table, right? right. So a lot of those funds um, originate with what looks like the same legacy private equity and or hedge or venture capital funds. You know, I, I would challenge anyone. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more. Hey everyone, I'm so excited for today's episode as we chat with Karen Wazorzak on her journey through poverty to now being Washington Regional President for BNY Mellon, one of the largest asset managers in the world. Karen is an expert on socially responsible and impact-oriented investing, having led impact initiatives for two privately held family offices, including being Managing Director of Rockefeller Capital Management. She's also the Chair of the Mayor Foundation and founder of the Pomono Society, a collective of women in impact who come together to affect systemic change for women and families in the District of Columbia. Today, we unpack impact washing, stakeholder capitalism, and the triple threat of inequality. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen. Now let's get started. Sarah, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's it's exciting to have this conversation and and um, see so many listeners interested in it. So thank you, but thank you for doing this. No, of course, it, it is my pleasure because not only have you done a lot of billion dollar moves in your own life, but also in impacting so many lives, you know, and that's really what it's about. So let's start with the first part here. You know, we want to dive deep um, mm -hmm. and really dive in into also your personal journey. And from the outset, you know, not many would have guessed that you personally have a deep personal connection to your mission and has impacted the, the way that you're thinking about the work you do. So tell us a little bit about what got you here and, you know, even your moment in, in poverty, if, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Because I think like, like everyone probably listening, we, we arrive at our work and our vocation a lot of through lived experience, right? And so my story really started as a child, um, losing, losing my parents, um, early in life and kind of setting in motion a very uh, deeply impoverished childhood. And, and what, that informs you when you're going through something like that is you you see better than most where the systems are broken right and so throughout my life whether it's the education system that we're dealing with today in public education when i say that or whether it's the healthcare system um whether it's food insecurity um whether it's workforce and how do you engage in mainstream economy when you are growing up in such a way that you can't access anybody to help you do that Right. And so, mm -hmm. so for me, I was really fortunate that I um, loved mathematics. And so I was um, 
went down a journey educationally in finance that kind of launched me to where I am today and had the really good fortune um, because of the way I grew up, very independent, very much a caretaker of my family. Um, you know, I, I kind of stepped in as a child parent of uh, my siblings. And in doing so, you've become so resourceful. Um, not only are you trying to solve your own needs in Maslow's hierarchy, but you're also really, really concerned about these these siblings that are around you that you feel personally responsible responsible for as though they're your own, right? And so, mm-hmm. and then one of the things that I think is lost on on our society and how we think about solutions for the poor is we aren't we aren't living in those experiences. And so we're not proximate. And I, I kind of call this proximity for, for change. Right. And, and so if people who are living in poverty tend to become very alienated from how the rest of the economy is really working. Right. And, and as time goes on, the longer you're living in such a state, the harder it becomes to re-engage with a community And so just through my own lived experience, I became deeply passionate about um, giving back as I kind of launched a career and finished uh, formal education. I have always been, uh, I would say, in parallel to my professional career, growing this community activist work, philanthropy work that was really centered around children in poverty and women that are oftentimes the only caretakers of those children. Um, But I would say in fairness, it really starts with my love of trying to fix the youngest humans among us and help them so that we have a different future state. Um, and and that's really where I became so passionate about how I could weave in uh, my profession into community work. And um, I'm a little bit different than others in the finance profession in that I very much have gray areas between, you know, how I think about capital mm-hmm. and where I'm allocating it, whether that's capital in time, capital in, you know, real money, the way that we think about it. And what's the highest and best use for, you know, our society's capital and my personal capital. And I kind of developed, you know, advisory techniques that help other other stakeholders make decisions around some of those same themes. So um, so it's been a really rewarding journey. Um, I'm a long way from done. And um, every every year we have interesting things that present that are uh, can be catastrophic to broader to broader society. And then how can I how can I kind of lend expertise and propel some of these ideas forward? Um, but but that's how I came to today and the work that I do. Right, love it, and and you know truly a testament for how uh, resourceful. Right, I mean mm-hmm. part of my my professional work is really about. Um, fueling women's led innovation through venture capital mm-hmm. and, and the funds that invest in them, because we really do see this. We see how resourceful, especially in this time of a pandemic, right? In COVID-19, where women have been so disproportionately hit, uh, 31%, you know, uh, decline in venture capital funding in the first three quarters last year. Uh, but just even just looking at your story, I, I've seen so many personal stories like this, where women are just so resourceful and, you know, part of this, this sort of success story of why they also outperform because, uh, the good news, bad news is they're underfunded, uh, but you know because they they've thought about cash management, they've thought about their resources around them. They're able to push that a lot further in terms of runway and in terms of what's next. And I'm glad to see that story yeah. in you as well. And you know from from 
being in poverty to then leading uh, Rockefeller Capital Management and then doing what you are now with some of the wealthiest families, endowments and foundations. I mean, that speaks um, very, very, you know, uh, favorably for, for what you've done. So congratulations on that, um, Karen. And so, so thrilled to, to have you on as the first guest. Now, let's turn to today's topic, the end of impact washing, or is it? And I'm sure, you know, many, especially on, on the clubhouse uh, stage and, and in the room are probably, um, you know, given where we are in Invest Club that's uh, so so kindly um, set up uh, by Jacques Philip here. So thanks, Jacques Philip, for, for this opportunity for us to really uh, share this moment with, with your crowd as well. Um, but for many of us who are tuning in as well, uh, we might not be practitioners like you. So let's set the stage for the topic here. You know, what does impact mean and why are we talking about impact washing is this uh you know really the case that we're seeing it being used um and, and misappropriated as a term what are your thoughts here yeah no i i love kind of the theme of our talk because it's really front and center in what i call uh, there's a there's a good bit of sensationalism right now right and so we we've, we've never before and first i do want to call out that we are having this show in the month of women's history month and mm -hmm. there is so much wrapped in this month around women and equal pay. And we're 50 years uh, from that decision and that legislation, but yet 39 years out from actually achieving it. So that's that's an almost 90 year gap, right? So kind of tuck that away. But one of the things that we, I think last year unveiled more than any other time in history is this, this perfect storm of uh, kind of women's inequity, racial inequity, um, you know, corporate kind of corporate behavior. Who are the good actors in corporations that can help solve community problems? And then really deep political fractures, right? That right. divided people. And so we kind of came, and then and then we saw kind of the healthcare inequity kind of exposed, you know, front and center. And so all of those were such sensational topics all of last year and still now and the the term washing really come and we it kind of comes from the kind of a, the origins of it are around greenwashing so if we think about environmental investments environment investments that are to think about climate action or think about renewables or think about global you know in the the environment broadly there there's always been suspicious suspicion around okay is someone is someone who's overseeing that investment or that idea really just say, is, is it really just the veneer? If you unpacked what they're actually doing, what a company is actually doing, are they actually moving the needle? Are they actually measuring the change, the impact that they're having? Um, and even if they're trying to not do more harm, right, that's a measure, right. Like, look, I'm going to stem, I'm going to stem the bleeding. Right. And that's also a measure. So where we're at in this moment in time, around washing and impact washing, take all of those themes and the word, and, and if we kind of think about and unpack what impact means, it's really, you know, let's take, um, let's take education, for example, because that's kind of near and dear to me, is we have right now a public school crisis in America. And then we'll kind of call it America since we're with we global listeners here. But we've had children out of school for more than a year and for every trimester a learner is not learning equals about three percent of future wages lost 
right? Wow. So if you think about, and that's significant, that's about 1.3 trillion in future GDP, not mm-hmm. earned. And so if you think about, okay, what can I do today to change that story, that future story? And what kind of investment does that look like? And the impact you're having is closing that metric, right? So we want to close the metric that is this future GDP loss or this future learner unable to succeed in, in workforce and earn a livable wage or better than, right? And so that's that to me is a clean example because it really speaks to the human element of impact, a little bit different than say environmental impact. And what we're trying to do in the environment is reduce pollutions, toxins, carbon footprint. And we have, we have, you know, you know, a, a, a set of goals that the world has come together around to decide what are these impact, I call impact themes. Mm-hmm. And there are 17 of them so that we can all arrive at a similar outcome that um, and so the, these are set forth by the United Nations. They're called the Sustainable Development Goals. One of them is to eliminate global poverty. Right. right. It's something very near and dear. It's also another is to create um, equality in education. And so these are all every country comes to these goals with different degrees of severity in trying to achieve them. And so you and I, as investors and capital allocators, have an opportunity to say, okay, what can I do then to contribute to this this deadline, this looming deadline of, of the year 2030, where we should have parity on some of these inequalities. And so that, when we're talking about impact, that's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to have this really big impact that we arrive at a place where there is greater economic participation, mm-hmm. where there's a, a better, more highly quali- higher quality healthcare distribution. We're seeing the we're seeing kind of America's broken healthcare system today in just how we're distributing a vaccine. Something a little bit straightforward, but somehow we aren't really managing that in a way that is very scalable. So there's a there's impact to be had there. Um, and then how, who, who are the people that were really suffering through the pandemic because we came into the pandemic in, it was such unequal footing, right? In, in a variety of our communities across the country, but largely disproportionately, and I think you hit on it, disproportionately affecting women. And listeners may not realize, but in the December unemployment numbers, the net jobs lost were 100% owned by women, And so that's a setback to 1980 women entering the workforce, right? And the numbers of getting more and more women into the workforce. And so we, we now, we took a few steps back. And so the impact we need to have is squarely our charge in who we fund. What does that look like and how we can actually bring more capital to the table to support what those unemployment numbers largely then it's about, it's usually about 50%, believe it or not, that ultimately go to a place of, look, I'm going to start my own business. I'm not going to re-enter the workforce in the way that I was before. And I'm going to start my own business. And we're going to see a lot of that springing to life here in the next year or two. So yes. Thanks for that, Karen. And, and, you know, I think it's interesting that you touch on a few points, but one thing I did want to pick up and you spoke about this, um, I believe on a mission 
uh, forward as well, you know, in yeah. terms of where we are, which I thought was quite a uh, sticking point there that, that left me really rethinking a lot of the work that we're doing, right? And even yeah. in the venture capital space, you know, where, where uh, we talked, you talked about on, on that podcast a little bit about the war on poverty and mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, when, when this was uh, a concept that was brought to life in the US, uh, I believe it was in 1964, yeah. 19% was the number, right, of, of uh, Americans living in poverty. And now, more than 50 years later, two million nonprofits later, uh, where yeah. the sole purpose is tied to breaking the cycle of poverty, um, that the gap has actually widened. Um, <laughs> and it points to the fact that, you know, we aren't, you know, doing no harm is not good enough. Right. And, you know, especially now, you know, and, and it will be remiss for me not to even mention the moment that we're in with the rise of, of hatred against Asian Americans and yeah. just the rise of racial reckoning, you know, that the, the perfect storm of everything right now um, and investors are sort of sitting there, you know, doing sometimes I, I think, you know, it looks like more of the same. Uh, and my question is to you with, with this as a backdrop, right. Of um, poverty being one of the goals that you work on. And of course yeah. there are many other goals that we're talking about here, the 17 SDGs um, where, where has investing and impact investing gone wrong here and where are we going? Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting, and I talked on that podcast. Um, I call I call kind of a triple threat, right? We, you and I talked about this, and it's really, you know, if we think about um, what we all need to kind of succeed, uh, live healthy, productive lives, uh, it centers around education, workforce, and healthcare, right? And we're at a moment in time where we're deciding what of those things are necessities and should be borne by all. And what are those things are personal choices borne by you, right? And where we have inequities and, and especially in the education space um, and then also in workforce is really around, and this is where I think impact investing has gone wrong. And we have, and this is where impact washing is kind of coming in, is we have about 500 billion right now that is been allocated to I would what I would call impact investment funds, those look to be private offerings, right? So when I say that, I want to separate from the uh, kind of public markets and the theme around environmental, social, and governance and what we call in the in the practice ESG. And so we'll separate those out for a minute. And where the great influence, where, where impact investment hasn't gotten the traction that it should have or should have by now is largely who's who are the stakeholders at the table, Right. Right. So a lot of those funds um, originate with what looks like the same legacy private equity and or hedge or venture capital funds. You know, I I would challenge anyone. And I think there's plenty of statistics. That's about a nine. Like if you took an average uh, an average ownership group of an impact fund, you might see eight men, two women. Right. Mm -hmm. That are part of that. And then this the. The odds look even worse if you're a person of color having a stake in an impact fund. So there isn't this relatable body governing that capital. They have there's big, great ideas, but there isn't the relatable person at the table that can lend the voice of what's happening in the community. What are you trying to solve? And do you have the person who's had that lived experience in the room helping to challenge why something may or may not work? And so you you end up having, you know, some that survive and we're getting 
and then and then some shut down and close and don't get the traction. Some of the issue too, and so if you just take lack of diverse lack of diversity, no different than in the corporate world, and especially in my space in finance, um, lacks huge diversity in the uh, upper ranks, right? And um, that's not lost on anybody here. Uh, I would suspect listening to the call. But if you if you take lack of diversity and you take the past twenty years where in some of the impact funds, you don't have, I would say, policy supports. So in in investment land, a lot of times up till up until I would say the recent five years, you really had silos of who was going to oversee the capital and how that got influenced. And so, you know, an impact investment um, entrepreneur wouldn't so much be out talking about, okay, what are the policy supports and what are those levers? And I can't actually succeed or scale without certain policy supports and whether those are federal supports or or local municipal supports. And I don't mean tax subsidies in this way. What I mean really is um, legislation and governing bodies not getting in the way of improving something that we believe is a complete violation of how we should be living as people or how the planet should be continuing to breathe, right? And right now we have this wonderful moment in time where we actually have a more supportive um, administration. And as as you saw quickly, we rejoined the Paris Treaty Agreement. We have also started to um, kind of bring back into um, the legislation or opinions about who can and can't invest in environmental social governance themes as institutional buyers. So that is, that's what I mean. There has to be, there has to be an acknowledgement that there really is a partnership between private enterprise and public policy. And I think that is, I think after last year, I think that kimono is wide open, right? That, okay, there is a role to play. The stakeholder umbrella is much larger than just the shareholder who made the initial investment seeking just one, you know, simple return. Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands, everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu-loving entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, Talking Too Loud, wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Um, we actually are now seeing stakeholders throughout the employee ranks, throughout the who we, who we even partner with in, in uh, other vendors as a as a public corporation. So right. all of those voices now are coming to the table and saying, okay, now we need to be a little bit more transparent. And that's back mm-hmm. to the washing comment. And a lot of the regulations that are coming out right now, or opinions, I should say, from the SEC, and then also kind of bolstering what SASB, which is the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, have laid forth as to Okay, there has to be um, there has to be metrics that we're going to be held accountable to, and there have to be transparency to investors that are buying into these kinds of ideas and themes, and yeah. that's going and, to and improve 
all of yeah. the, all of the capital inflows, I think. Absolutely. And, and Karen, I just want to, you know, dig a little deeper here as well and, and sort of layer it on in the context of endowments. You know, you talk what what you're talking about here is in terms of the roles of the different parties. Right. So not just um, I think the, the more the Warren Buffett type approach, which is, yes. you know, it's, it's you're in it for the shareholder. Uh, yeah. But now what we're seeing, and, and I'm also a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, one of the popular things that are coming up is stakeholder activism and the fact That's that right. you must do more and you must uh, reflect. Right. I think at the end, they, you know, part of my work is also speaking with uh, pension funds and a lot of them are really thinking hard about, wait a minute, you know, our money managers don't reflect the beneficiaries uh, that we are in business for. Right. To support um, David Swenson, right. Dean Swenson, who's um, uh, part of Yale, 32 billion endowment, who goes on to influence, uh, I want to say, you know, in his in his uh, group, uh, more than a hundred billion combined. So those who, who followed suit in his type of model, which again has pros and cons, and there's yeah. a lot of debate around that. Um, but the fact that even at that level, you know, they're demanding a lot more. Are you seeing this at your level with your work in endowments and foundations as well in terms of, you know, where, where does the investment go and what does this mean with regards to the practicality of stakeholder activism here? Oh, absolutely. Because, and if you think about, especially in, in private foundations and other kind of tax exempt silo, much like the endowments, and you have you have this requirement set forth by the IRS that you know five percent kind of has to go out into by way of grants to achieve your mission, right? Whatever mm-hmm. it is. And if I take the foundation that I oversee and am investment chair for that's a very clear mandate as to where that 5% goes and who you're going to influence in the community, how you're going to meet the objectives. And in the, in the work I do with that foundation is around racial equity, um, largely. Right. And so, and then what happens to this other 95% that there's a much bigger, much bigger pool of capital, much bigger lever to pull to actually have a voice and system change. And that's, that has, uh, you know, up until more recently been siloed as two separate objectives, two separate agendas, right? And now what you're seeing is, wait a second, I'm actually invested in things that are antithetical to what I'm distributing out the front door by way of grants. So I'm a practitioner who really firmly believes in looking at the entirety of it holistically and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, can you actually have some influence on the investment piece that you can create mission aligned investment programs? And that's very much happening and where, um, and you just have to think about, okay, who's the governing body that you're reporting up to in private foundation land, a little bit different than endowment and 401k and benefit corps mm-hmm. through the ERISA kind of ERISA legislation that now they are all asking because they have other stakeholders. Like you said, if you take even a university endowment, you've got students now kind of rioting the schools and demanding the overseers of the endowment to be investing for the future as it relates to, and I'm a good example with the environment. You know, one college I was working with, they, they were getting so much pressure. The, the governing body over the endowment wasn't really they're looking at the the absolute return in traditional financial sense and not this other lens of impact. And they didn't start to actually kind of change their thinking 
until the next generation and the student body were approaching them and saying, wait a second, you're investing the endowment in all these things that are actually destroying and, and, you know, going against what we're trying to achieve with regard to, in this case, climate change and global warming. And that, that's, that in university came to me and we start thinking about, okay, well, what, how can you resituate your portfolio? How can you allocate this capital in a way that supports also what the mission uh, is for this university and what the student body is expecting to uh, kind of leave a legacy around this capital. So that's a a big yes, but that's also the reason that you're seeing more products being created that need more oversight. So there isn't the washing. And so I think that's, what's getting a lot of attention right now is how do you actually oversee all the product creationists so that all these governing bodies that have to do to conduct due diligence on each of these ideas is able to actually understand them. Right. That they they can they can actually point from, OK, my dollar did this it started here and this was the goal. And I made this kind of progress and or this is, the you know, this is patient capital. Right. This is like yeah. longer than 10 year runway kind of ideas. Yeah. Karen, so you pick on two points there that I want to, you know, the second one I'll come back to. But one of the key points you brought up is uh, the demands of uh, working with, you know, the college endowment and how the students came out and said, you know, we, we demand more from. Um, the investments that you're making and climate, of course, you know, being front and center of ESG um, and, and, you know, in sort of reflecting on some of the trends that we're seeing here, you know, going to the why part of why impact investing and why this matters, right? Uh, millennials are the largest consumer market today yes. and the older millennials are at their prime spending age and their attitudes towards sustainability is just unmatched, right? Morgan Stanley reports that at least in the US, and I think we're seeing this in Asia as well, um, that millennials tend to purchase from sustainable brands twice as much. And we're most likely, I think it's three times more likely, uh, you know, choose to work with a company that has sustainable practices. So that's one trend. The other one is, you know, um, further to, I guess, what David Swenson and the Larry Finks of the world are talking about is, and this is the part of ESG that I want to unpack with you a little bit is, 18% 18% of assets are now allocated to ESG. Um, yes. Assets under management are allocated to ESG globally, and this will climb to about 40% in the next five years. So, you know, when people ask me, why why should I think about sustainability? And my simple answer is, well, if you can shut yourself off as a company, you're looking for capital, and if you can shut yourself off from 40% of capital, then fine, you know, don't do anything sustainable. Um, but, you know, it, it's still... It's still a conversation. So, so where are we in this ESG? And you know, uh, again, you know, uh, an area that I'm passionate about is gender seems to be uh, left behind in the conversation on climate and all that. So, can you talk to us a little bit of what you're seeing in the market from an ESG standpoint here? Yeah, no, and that's exactly right. So, Larry Fink has been a really so um, part of the business roundtable, um, and so a group of CEO leaders led by uh, led by Larry Fink have have come out in that roundtable, and he publishes this in his annual letter, um, really calling on corporations to take some responsibility, to consider the role they play in stakeholder Mm -hmm. capitalism. And then that's leading to some traction around 
you know, how do we reimagine what capitalism should look like for everyone to participate uh, more more equally? Um, one of the things to the statistic, the U, the U.S. SIF, which is the United uh, States uh, so, uh, Sustainable Investment Forum, that is headed by Lisa Wall. They do some fantastic data tracking and and just the inflows. So to your point, how much is invested in um, a fund that identifies as ESG? Right. And so they don't have to do all three of those things, the E, the S and the G. They can just do one and they might they would qualify for that. Um, it grew four times, four times larger in volume than in 20 from 2012 to 2020. Wow. So just to kind of show the proliferation of funds that are standing up and saying, hey, we are an ESG themed fund. What what's really interesting is you unpack it based on and really the call to action that Larry Fink and others have have expressed in kind of corporate sustainability and the role that corporations play um, throughout their verticals, right, are a company may not identify as an ESG company, but they certainly have a lot of, they have CSR teams, corporate social responsibility teams that are checking a lot of boxes that could qualify them to meet a lot of the sustainability criteria. And so there's that intersection happening. So that dynamic is happening across the S&P 500. Um, there's an organization, uh, I think, hugely of that pulls the American people to your point on millennials and kind of what they what they think that the highest needs are and who might be responsible for satisfying those needs. And uh, overwhelmingly, all Americans, not to, and it, the poll came in on that, about 70% of the Americans that were polled said, yes, corporations have a responsibility to play here. Um, they can help close the wealth gap. They can help close income gap. They can help uh, improve diversity throughout leadership ranks. They hold the power. Right. And so it's not just about figuring out what the next entitlement program should be in this country. I don't believe that's the answer. I think it's about how do we actually use the capital markets to benefit all um, with more voices in that conversation. I think we'd be better in the future. Um, we can only you can only grow the entitlement pie so big. Right. Because it has to be funded from something. But that's where you're seeing. Uh, and just a funny story. I was uh, buying some new uh, school shoes for my son. And the ones he picked out and he picked out because they had a sign on them that said hmm. that these shoes were made. It's Adidas makes them. It's a certain line of Adidas right. that says that this is made entirely from ocean recycled ocean plastic. Right. So, so the next generation is very much aware of their role in the footprint pun intended mm -hmm. that they want to leave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Karen, we could go on and on, but you know, this is a short power hour, uh, well, 30 minutes, and then we'll go on to Clubhouse very shortly to open it up. But uh, let's get practical here. You know, you advise your clients from the wealthiest family offices to the endowments and foundations to do the right thing, right? To invest their dollars and, and scale, uh, scale impact in a meaningful way. And today I was on a separate uh, room on Clubhouse where uh, there was a, a bit of a debate on, you know, the fact that is unfortunately for certain parts of impact, you know, you, you can't activate that to get market returns. And then, you know, um, an, another um, leader, I think he's from Hopeful Cycle, you know, said that eventually we'll get to a place where impact investing 
isn't even a thing because everything we, that we're investing in has to tie in with impact. So how do we do this? How do we design for impact um, practically? What what are the billion dollar moves here that we can take? I mean, we've got um, VCs. I see VCs. I see some uh, senior leaders on the call here that are leading their charges and their different ways. But how can yeah. we design for impact and do that at scale? Oh, I think, it, well, first, um, I do agree with that. I think if you 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 have to make investments that are not in ignorance of what the policymaking is doing, right? So if you're looking at an investment and all the policy wins are against you, it might not be successful by any metric, financial or otherwise. The big moves that you can make, and if you think about where the, uh, especially in the venture capital world, where you think, mm -hmm. where you see the, the business growth sector happening and uh, uh, basically uh, Latin women, Black women, uh, those are the largest by, by headcount uh, new businesses forming in America. I'd get behind some of those ideas. I would, I would start to actually put money where you think the system needs changing. Those particular groups have not had due to legislative, um, legislative headwinds and banking regulations we've had over the years have not had access to capital in the ways that other, other individuals have, other, other white folks have had. And so I would get behind those ideas. Those are going to be big billion dollar moves and they, there will be success from that. And especially coming off of the, you know, the unemployment numbers specifically targeting women because they were the caregivers, teachers, hospitality workers, they covered most of the sectors that were battered last year. Um, and so there's going to be, be a big sea change of power and where those women start to come back into the workforce. And so supporting companies that hire women. Um, mm -hmm. So whether you're doing this from a consumer perspective or whether you're doing this as an investor in a company, um, look at who they look at who they're who their client, their 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 customers are, who their employee makeup, what they look like, what their boards look like. So really, kind of put your money where your mouth is. If you actually believe that um, we all have the power to succeed, fund those ideas, right? Like fund them just as you would have found, just as we would have funded a similar idea owned by someone that doesn't look like us. Right. So there's going to have to be a little bit of a leap of faith for some people. But um, I think that's where I'm very conscious of who I uh, what companies I shop with and make purchases from and what brands uh, website I love is Know the Chain. And so I look at Know the Chain. Um, you can have a great deal of influence in not supporting organizations that are doing the harm. And those are easy consumer ways. And then the investor ways are actually are actually to back some of these impact themes that are actually right behind the system change. Great. So playing a role that in, in sort of pushing your influence as a consumer and as an investor, I guess, from an LP and GP standpoint as well, I think, you know, tr trying to move move the needle here. And, and, you know, I think that's what a lot of the folks on the call and uh, that are watching are really trying to do so with that um karen thank you so much you know i think we really uh try to jam in as much as we can on impact where we are <laughs> we you did. know opening the kimono running through a lot of uh you know key trends here from the rise of millennials to esg and just how important that is uh in, in moving forward so thanks for so much uh karen for running through all that and thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen, and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.